the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome to The Common Good on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We're excited to be with you today. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, on Twitter at Common Good Talk. Uh, As always, you can find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Go ahead and subscribe, rate, review. Happy Tuesday, man. Hope you're doing everything going well today. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's a day. Yeah. It's a day. Well, we're uh, glad to have you join us. Uh, every now and then, we like to tell stories and bring out things from around the world. Usually, we can be pretty Chicagoland-centric or America-centric, but it's a good reminder for us to be cognizant of what's going on in Christianity and uh, around the world. And so this one, we figured we'd start with, it. the title says this, Chinese megachurch torn down during worship service. A megachurch in Funan County of uh, the Anhui province of China was leveled Friday during a worship service. Authorities also arrested the church's two pastors. The pastors were held on charges of suspected gathering of people to disturb social order. The church was destroyed even though it was government sanctioned. No legal documents were provided to the church prior to demolition. Uh, Fuyang Christian Church, which can seat 3,000 people was the latest uh, victim of of the emperor's religious fascism uh, campaign. Uh, China Aid is a national nonprofit human rights organization, they said, committed to promoting religious freedom and the rule of law in China. And so a few hundred believers were actually in the church when the demolition began. Uh, And they wrote, this is yet another clear example, the pastor said. Uh, This is yet another clear example showing the escalation of religious persecution today by the Chinese communist regime. The total disregard of a religious freedoms protection as enshrined in the Communist Party's own constitution tells the whole world that President Yi is uh, determined to continue his war against peaceful Christian faithful. This campaign will surely fail. In the end. So kind of a crazy story. Like I didn't know. Yeah, not kind of. <laughs> I didn't know a lot of this. You know that there's religious persecution in China under the communist regime. But uh, like uh, the huge mega church while people are in it. That's uh, that's pretty crazy. Does it make it crazier to you that it was so big? Uh, only in the sense that it being so big probably meant that it was either sanctioned or it was allowed. This feels like an escalation. Uh, not knowing I'm making a guess. Like when I read the story, I'm going, well, obviously they knew that church was there all along. Right. Like it's so big. It wasn't it, some underground movement or anything. Correct. And he even said in the article, it was a government sanction. Like they had okayed it already. So it, it, that does make it crazier just in the sense of, man, does that feel like an escalation? Uh, and then you read all the stuff going on with China and Hong Kong and all the stuff. You just wonder if there's a tightening of the grip going on that yeah. uh, for our brothers and sisters in China. It's really humbling though. Cause I can't, 
ever think of a time where a fear of anything even remotely close to this has mm-hmm. ever even entered my head. Like there is certainly fears in the United States around faith and Christianity. I'm not saying it's devoid of that, right. but something to this magnitude has, I've never thought about once in my life. No. The fact that it's happening during an actual gathering of people is all the more remarkable. In fact, it says later that the two pastors are still in prison. Yeah. And they said, unless the two leaders start to collaborate with the Chinese Communist Party's propaganda fully, they'll be likely indicted and even get a criminal sentence for their defiance of the church demolition. So Mm. it's not just a, oh, man, they lost their property or, oh, that's crazy. These two pastors who I imagine maybe have spouses and kids are still in prison because of this. Again, not a reality that you or I have ever had to face. It's true. At all. Like, not even not even close. And we've tackled this idea before, how disconnected we can often be from the global church. And I wonder what, like, what are the practical, like, nuts and bolts that we miss being in a, in a place with so many freedoms? Like, is, yeah. there, is there a connection, like a heart connection to the big C church that we often are blind to because of how comfortable we are here? I think so. I think it. It, for me, it numbs at all in awareness that there is even stuff going on outside our like you can become numb. You know, it, it's like, you know, um, mentally, this isn't true, but you can become numb to the fact that not everybody around the world uh, has the safety that we do. Right. Right. That to even be behind microphones like this, I never right. got behind this microphone talking about Jesus and the government and other things and go. Ugh, could get arrested on the way out of here. Like, right. That's not a fear of mine. And it could become easy to become lulled to sleep to go, well, that's how it is for everybody. Like, okay. Right. And then, you know, we can become, a, we can get a martyr complex where we're like, oh my gosh, like they're not letting us do X or Y. Or like, you know, there was this article written about Christianity in America when in reality there are, there are still a lot of people facing life and death things around the world uh, that, that at the very least we need to be driven to pray for uh, but also just to be aware of so that we can figure out ways that we can help. And just it raises the stakes again that, oh, yeah, OK, uh, this is how Christianity started. Right. Right. Like, right. You read these stories and you're like, well, that was how it was in the book of Acts, not big buildings, but other things where they're unjustly being arrested, uh, being told, you know, you've got to get in line with the government and all this stuff. And it becomes really uh, a it's a it's a scary proposition. But B, uh, also a reminder that Christianity is still flourishing it's still moving uh even in the midst of this type of persecution sometimes oftentimes even better because of the persecution well and we found this because uh, a guy named bob fu who founded china aid was tweeting out some of the different photos and videos and this is how the article ends here it says fu asked for prayers for christians in china pray that even in the midst and despite of persecution believers of christ will continue to stand strong and faithfully proclaim the gospel of Christ. I love that level of courage. To me, honestly, that feels like Acts chapter four, right? Mm. When Peter and John, who had just you know spent the night in prison and then were brought before this council, told to stop preaching, they were threatened, go back to their community. They pray for boldness, signs and wonders. But before they do that, it says, Lord, consider their threats. Mm. There's like this awareness that like, hey, we know we're in very real danger here. Consider their threats and help us to proclaim with boldness. Do yeah. signs and miracles and yes. wonders among us that blow people's minds. Like, I think that that to me feels very, very similar. Like, we, we know that we're in defiance here. We know that we're in real danger. And we know that praying this prayer 
could very well lead us to some dangerous places. But yeah. I love that that's how the article ends. I pray that even in the midst and despite persecution of believers of Christ will continue to stand strong and faithfully proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love mm-hmm. that courage and that boldness. And I'm also, I think, convicted in my own heart reading that level of perseverance and knowing like, man, if my building was just demolished with people yeah. in it, that m- might not be my prayer. And, I, you know, that's 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 really convicting. Yeah, it absolutely is. And so uh, we as you know, Western Christians, we need to, at the very least, be praying for these people. They're, they're asking for our prayers, right? Right. right. Uh, so this isn't just something to go, well, well that's interesting. But like, right. we need to join the fight. If we believe in the power of prayer, if we believe that this is these are our brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, you know, that, that we need to join alongside them and be praying for them and to be reminded of, you know, it's another example of how Christianity was founded in the book of Acts. You talk about how you preaching through the book of Acts basically right now. Mm-hmm. This is what we read over and over again. And it's not like that has gone away just because it's gone away for us in our right. country. Right. Which is, I, I, again, it's so hard to reconcile because if, you know, we talk a lot about there are these things that are happening globally and technologically we're more connected than ever. Yes. And yet it feels like we're getting more and more myopic. I agree. Like we have more opportunity at our fingertips to learn about what's actually happening globally. And yet sometimes it feels like the church gets more and more honed in on just what's happening, you know, in our little neighborhood, which is important too. you know, like yep. be involved and mindful of your city. But I think learning and knowing what's going on with the big C church globally is just as important. hundred percent. Right. Well, coming up next, uh, well-known atheist, Richard Dawkins, Uh, says that God informs morality and ending religion would actually be a bad idea. We're going to discuss that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, Twitter at Common Good Talk, and always find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Go ahead, subscribe, rate, review. And uh, thanks to those of you who have already done that. Uh, So well-known atheist, Richard Dawkins. I think uh, even those of us who uh, are part of the church probably read a lot of Dawkins stuff or at least have been, um, I've heard of him. I think his new nickname, I think he wants to be called uh, Dickie D is what he's, that's the new (laughs) word on the street for Richard Dawkins. That's his pseudonym. (laughs) His pseudonym, yeah. That's his Twitter handle. Uh, And so uh, (laughs) he's the author of a new book called Outgrowing God. And one of the world's leading atheists, I said God, very, uh, very old school preacher, <laughs> I go, outgrowing God. <laughs> I was I was ready to raise a hand and convert, God, man. I was, give yeah. me your best old school God right there. God? Nope, nope, nope. I gave it to you. He's the author of the new book, <laughs> Outgrowing God. Okay. Uh, and one of, the uh, one of the world's leading atheists. And uh, he interestingly, as a part of this book and in his interview, says ending religion would be a bad idea. What's going on in this? I'm going to read most of it. Yeah. I'll read until one of us gets bored, okay? Mm-hmm. So Dawkins told The Times and The Sunday Times he fears if religion were abolished, it would, quote, give people a license to do really bad things. He says, people may feel free to do bad things because they feel God is no longer watching them, he said. Just as the security cameras deter, uh, deter shoplifting, he said, individuals might feel free to commit crimes without a, quote, divine spy camera in the sky <laughs> reading their every thought, which is something he's written about in the past. Uh, Dawkins told the newspapers about an experiment by Professor Melissa Bateson of the University of Newcastle. She set up a honesty box 
in a university coffee room to pay for drinks, whether coffee, tea, or milk, and placed a price list on the wall. During some weeks, she decorated the sign with pictures of flowers. Other weeks, she placed an image of a pair of eyes. People paid, quote, nearly three times as much for their drinks when eyes were displayed. She and the other researchers wrote in a paper about the experiment. That's fascinating. Dawkins discussed the experiment in his 2019 book, Outgrowing God, in a chapter titled, Do We Need God in Order to Be Good? It says, whether irrational or not, it does unfortunately seem plausible that if somebody sincerely believes God is watching his every move, he might be more likely to be good. I must say, I hate that idea. I want to believe that humans are better than that. I'd like to believe I'm honest whether anyone is watching or not. I'm going to stop there because I think that statement and that experiment is super fascinating. Are you surprised by any of that so far? Now, I was going to say, man, he has a really weird view of this. And then the experiment goes, oh, maybe it's true. Like the whole, I, I don't know of many people. I would like to think not many people see God as just kind of the great, he's just watching. And so we're going to do good things. But I, maybe it's more true than I give it credit for. Um, so, no, I wouldn't say that it's uh, it's hugely uh, surprising. What is interesting is it's him going as an atheist. I wish this wasn't the case, but since it is the case, law well, might as well still have religion. It's going to give us some civil order. Yeah. Well, and it goes on to talk about uh, Ken Ham, who's the founder and president of the Christian ministry answers in Genesis says there is irony in Dawkins argument, which I think is interesting. He says Dawkins has spent his life fighting against God, parenthetically the God he doesn't believe even exists. Ham wrote in the answers in Genesis website, but he still recognizes that atheism, the worldview Uh, religion of Richard Dawkins doesn't provide the foundation for morality that is needed to keep people from doing, quote, really bad things. Without a biblical foundation, anything goes. Who is to say what is right or wrong? There is no ultimate foundation. It becomes arbitrary. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. In fact, Dawkins is admitting that atheism is totally bankrupt morally, which I don't actually think Dawkins is saying. I was going to ask you, you, that's funny. I was almost asked you to stop there because why don't you think that's what he's saying? What do you think he is saying? Dawkins is outright saying, "I, I hate that this coffee shop experiment is even in any way true of human behavior. I hate that uh, he hates the thought, I think, that people would need some sort of arbiter in the sky yeah. who's sort of spying on our every thought. I don't think he would agree at all that without biblical theology, we have no moral compass. Mm-hmm. I think he's actually written pretty extensively otherwise. So I, I don't know that Ham totally nails it in his assessment of what Dawkins, Dawkins believes. I think what Dawkins is saying is, He's starting to, or has been for a while, recognizing that there, there might actually be some social benefits to a belief in this God that he, you know, claims that he does not believe in, yeah. and 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 self admittedly really hates the premise in the first place because he wants to believe in like the innate goodness of humans. So yeah. I think that's those are two ideologies kind of rubbing up against each other. But I don't think he would agree with Ham's assessment that like yeah, without the Bible. Anything goes because we've also seen the Bible used right. to have a sort of anything goes type of culture. We've seen the Bible used for all sorts of horrific acts. So, you know, I don't I don't think it's as cut and dry as really either of them are saying. Do you think that there are people, people, uh, not people, but a majority of people or a large number of people out there who the only reason they do or don't do things is because God is watching? Yes, you do. Tell me more about that. Uh, I don't know that I could. Because I can't think of anything, anyone specifically, but yeah. I think there there is a. Um, it's worth recognizing that for a lot of us, if you're a you know what we would call maybe a cultural Christian, mm-hmm. um, there are certain kind of bumpers like lanes in a bowling alley that we hope that this adherence to a moral code will kind of keep us heading in the right direction. But I also know, and this is, um, I'd be curious to know your experience in pastoral counseling. 
uh, that often comes out pretty quickly that someone is feeling some level of cosmic guilt because they know that God now they're confessing to me, their pastor, right. which is a whole different kind of step and approach. There's an assumption that I'm like closer to yeah. this God than, than maybe they are. But you have, I, the, you have the direct phone number. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, I got yeah. the direct bat line. But I, I, <laughs> I, I think uh, if you really peel back the layers, I think a lot of people for me, it's the difference between like an intimate growing relationship with Jesus of Nazareth yeah. versus I don't want to make them mad mm-hmm. or I don't really want to, I don't want to cross this line or how far, I mean, even in youth ministry, how many times did you hear a kid say, how far is too far? Yep. Like we're asking the wrong question exactly. entirely. That's not a, that's not a relationship type question. When you're asking, how much can I get away yeah. with without going to cosmic jail? And you're like, yeah. well, that's missing the point. And I think a lot of that transfers into adulthood. We're like, yeah, but it's cheating under taxes really that, but you know, like yep. it's sort of the self justification. I think those are all signposts that point towards a sort of, God as spy in the sky yeah. type of relationship. Interestingly, as a as a pastor, let me give you a chance to do some encouragement for people. So a person's driving right now going, you know what? I do kind of just see God as the, uh, the moral arbiter who just keeps me in line. And I, I do it so that he doesn't get mad at me. And now you've just mentioned this whole it's different than having a relationship with actually Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah. Uh, how is it different? The guy out there going, oh, that's interesting. Like, what, 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 are, what is that invitation? What is different? I, I think the word invitation, you hit the nail on the head. I think when you look at, like, the Sermon on the Mount, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's a great place to start. If you really want to know the nature and heart of God, we see the full expression of Jesus Christ. First off, mm-hmm. uh, if we believe that God is love, that is a transformative realization for a lot of people. But the life that Jesus invites us into is exactly that. They're like, man, you've been living this way. You've been chasing after these things. I'm, you can keep doing it if you want. Yeah. I'm telling you, this is where real life is found. Mm. Real life is found in not like Paul writes to Timothy, not in clinging to your wealth, but in living a life of generosity, yeah. not in punching your enemy back harder. So they know better than to do it next time, but by turning the other cheek and forgiving and loving and those types of things, I think can feel very shackling if we don't see them as an invitation. It's the mm-hmm. same with the 10 commandments, right? There's a prologue to the 10 commandments. People often see the 10 just as this list of do's and don'ts. Yep, it's yep. often how it's depicted. The prologue is, I am the Lord your God who brought you mm. out of slavery. I'm a relational God and I'm a liberating God. And if we miss the relational invitation and just jump to the list, mm-hmm. of course it's going to feel shackling and like some big brother eye in the sky type of relationship. I yeah. think when we when we extract the relationship piece out of it, all of that starts to come alive. Oh, that's great, man. Way to be pastoral. Hopefully yeah, some people thanks. out there needed to hear that because I do think you're right. I think a lot of us can tend towards just God is there to kind of condemn me and make sure that I'm following the 10 or whatever the rules we put to him uh, and missing that invitation uh, to something so much deeper. Uh, If you've got any questions about that, we would love to hear from you. You could do it at Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. Uh, We're pastors at heart, so we'd love to help you understand that and have conversation with you. Uh, Well, coming up next. Uh, this article says the most important virtue you always forget. Hmm. We're going to talk about that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life with Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. That's new music right there. Something it, I've never heard before here. Never? Mm. That's not in your uh, vein of natural music listening? I have nice. not the first idea even what that is. But it's jazzy. It does. I really like it, but I've never heard it as a rejoin for us coming back at a break. Mm-hmm. Like usually, 
most of them we've heard. I know you've been helping get some new music in there. Well done on that one. I feel like we should all be wearing like smoking jackets yeah, right now. And yeah. Maybe a monocle. It is amazing how much the music kind of sets the tone, at least to the beginning of the next segment. Like, okay, no, no, that was good. I'm flowing. We tend to have like a natural defiance, though, even eventually by the yes. middle of the segment there. Yes. Natural defiance to things outside of our. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Oh, anyway, Relevant Magazine, the most important virtue that people forget. This is written by a guy by the name of Dr. Uh, Barry Corey, the most important virtue virtue people forget. What is that virtue or how does he get to it? Well, I'm going to, yeah, let me read some of it because it's, it's teased out. I'd be curious. Nah, you already know what it is. You've read it. If, If someone's listening, be honest with yourself. What would you say is the most important virtue that people forget. We're not going to give the answer away just yet, but I'd be curious to give people a chance to actually respond to themselves even like, oh, I wonder what that is. He says, whenever my father prayed, he prayed out loud. As a boy, I would stand outside his study at home with my ears cupped against the door. I listened to him pray for me, for us, for the world, and to receive the Holy Spirit's unction, a word he liked to say. I felt comfort in his voice, knowing the pureness of what he did behind a closed door. As a boy, I didn't yet know that what happened behind preachers' closed doors was not always honorable. What a way to start an article, right? When my father emerged from his study, he exuded the love of Christ. His spirit of radical kindness to his family, to his colleagues, to his neighbors, and to strangers was forged on the anvil of prayer. What a sentence. He didn't pray to be kinder. He prayed to be more like Jesus. Kindness seemed to follow that prayer. Profound and unconditional kindness was a byproduct of his passionate pursuit of Christ-likeness. It was the fruit of the Spirit. The kindness fruit showed up not just in our home, but also around almost everyone he met. I recall a few encounters with shopkeepers or waitresses when he didn't ask questions or offer encouragement when he didn't make himself receive, uh, receivable. Usually he was unashamedly kind. So you're probably picking up on mm. what this author is saying is this forgotten virtue, which you and I even just last week were kind of talking about the importance, the kind of the lost art in Christendom of kindness. Right now, it seems like the trait that's most elevated is the clapback, mm. is the comeback, is the one-liner, is the mic drop. How yep. many how many mic drop moments have you seen? You, you tweeted something about that I the other day. Did, well, I was being snarky. I was like, can we stop with the mic drops? Those things are expensive. <laughs> <laughs> but in general, like I've seen people even like mic drop emoticon their own statement. And I'm like, okay. I'm not debating that your thing wasn't clever. Is that our is that our highest aim yeah. though? To have like when did everything in Christianity have to rhyme? You know what I mean? Like when did everything have to be like a lyric <laughs> to a song? Like even how he begins this, like I remember hearing like listening to my father pray for me, for us, for his church, for his community. I'm not saying that people don't still definitely do that. It just feels like we don't value it nearly as much as a church, as a culture. And uh, I'm just re- I'm really curious about that. Yeah, I just love this uh, one later. Uh, he writes, the power of kindness can do what the power of caustic arguments or arm twisting can never do. If I don't take this kindness idea seriously, especially among those with whom I disagree deeply, then how will they ever see in me the profound, reconciling, unmerited and sin forgiving love of Christ? Hmm. Too often we make the issue about who. Uh, is right. What a powerful description right. of our culture, right. Christian and non-Christian, and the difference of what this guy saw in his dad. I can't uh, help but uh, notice that the kindness uh, that that he's describing in his father is a byproduct of what he described at the beginning of a mm. prayerful, 
uh, deep connection with Jesus. Yeah. And this shouldn't surprise us as kindness is a fruit of the spirit. Right. But it's still it's still interesting to see this guy go, you know what? I saw my dad pray. Hmm. My dad would close his door. Uh, he would pray and pray and pray. And uh, I could hear him praying for me, for the church, for others. And then he'd come out, and a natural byproduct of that was kindness. Right. Like, the message of this isn't even go be kind. It is. It's one of the takeaways. Go be more kind people. Like, as Christians, we need to mirror that or or display that. But really, as kindness is a fruit of the Spirit, it really calls us to ask, how's the root connection? How is that? I think that's always an important invitation, too, because so often we preach sermons on good things. Yes. And we, we make the thing the aim. Like I would, this is maybe yes. a little controversial. I don't think the goal is to be a better prayer. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's to be kinder. I don't. I think the goal is intimacy with Christ. Yes, and the byproduct of that intimacy is an improved prayer life. Mm-hmm. Is greater kindness. Is greater generosity. I think we miss the mark when we preach to our people. Yeah, be more generous. Mm-hmm. And people may be motivated by that. That's a week the problem, or two. Yeah. right? Or maybe much longer. Yeah. I think we were talking even earlier. Sometimes this fear of God watching me can sometimes, at least at a surface level, change behavior. But I don't know that that's necessarily what Jesus was going after. Can I I read a little more from this? It's so well written. He says, The afternoon my father dropped off his soul-worn shoes, he asked the Armenian cobbler, whose name sounded like Kardashian, to to pray with him over the polished-stained counter. He reached out, and their hands linked until the prayer was over. I kept an eye on the doorway, hoping no one would come in and catch them in the act of talking to God. I was embarrassed then, but more recently I'm embarrassed by that childish embarrassment. Those days I thought my father didn't know when to keep to himself, didn't know when to just shake hands, but now I see him more accurately, a humble man who went out of his way to demonstrate kindness to so many he encountered, not just those he knew or agreed with. His modus operandi was simple. He believed Jesus died for the Middle Eastern man changing his oil and for the elderly couple living in the house next door who probably checked none on religious affiliation surveys. Mm. As far as my father was concerned, kindness called him to love them too. He made himself receivable though he was not always received. His friendly smiles, kind words, and waves to strangers were occasionally met with a brush off, a scowl, or even a finger. I love his kind of confession, and I can feel that confession when in my own times as a kid, like, oh gosh, why are we praying so long at the at the restaurant table? Yes. The waitress is going to come back. They're yes. going to catch us being weird. Like, I don't know if you ever experienced any of that. Yes. Probably even now as an adult, yes. to be honest. Yes. Like, this portrayal of a man who just faithfully... Humbly. In fact, he later uh, quotes Catcher in the Rye, the same quote that I used last week. The mark of the immature man is that he wants to die nobly for a cause, while the mark of the mature man is that he wants to live humbly for one. I, mm. I just love that picture of kindness. Man, that line in there, he made himself receivable to everyone, even though he, I've, I didn't hear it exactly, but even though he wasn't always received. Right. Like, that's that's awesome. Like, that is a... That is a humbling line, and I we all know people like this, uh-huh. right? We all know people like this. Uh, honestly, coming up in November, I'm gonna. I went and saw a screening of the Mister Rogers movie, right. you know. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about this before, but why is Mister Rogers like just become like a bit of a cultural phenomenon again? It's because this is how he was, and it looks so different than even more so how we are now versus right. how we were then. It's this whole like. Kindness is a is a virtue. Yep. It's not a it's not a sign of weakness. Right. But kindness is also a fruit of the spirit. And so what what brings about fruits of the spirit? I think you said it well, intimacy with Jesus. Well, and he talks too about like pride sort of being the antidote to mm. 
kindness. You know, when we stiff arm people or when we, you know, pretend that we're cool, too cool for school, that's that's pride. That's not kindness. And this this is how he ended. And he says, uh, I think about him today as I live in a culture increasingly skeptical of Christians and one that stereotypes them from a distance. I have learned from my father that living the Jesus way calls me as it called him to the to the winsomeness of the gospel. The path to being heard by those who do not know Christ sometimes begins through our lives of kindness as risky and awkward as this may be. Mm. That's so good. It's a great call. You can read that at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, for Ian Simpkins, I'm Brian Fromm. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm, and I feel like I stay alongside PJ, right? Our, our producer. Oh, yeah. PJ. Part of the team. Part of the team, PJ. The P and PJ stands for part of the team. <laughs> One word. Yes. Hi, my name is part of the team. Part of the team, John. John. Hyphenated. Yeah, yeah, lots of hyphenation. So uh, we're excited that you're joining us today. You can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show, on Twitter at Common Good Talk, online 1160hope.com, and find our podcast wherever it is you find podcasts. Well, at Relevant Magazine, they wrote uh, a list says this, five things you need to know before having your first kid. So you and I are in different spots here. Uh, my kids are getting a little bit older, still in the house, obviously, but, but I mean, both of our older. kids are getting older. That's the valid that's the nature of valid point time and age. Uh, I have a, I have a <laughs> sophomore in high school, a sixth grader and a fifth grader. And you have ones that you are thinking, oh, they'll go to school one day. <laughs> oh, they're in sixth grade already. Yeah, they're really advanced. Grade. They're young, but advanced. And so it's getting bullied a lot, though. That's uh, it's tough. It's yeah, tough. it's really <laughs> The potty training is an issue there, right? <laughs> Especially the public schools, right? <laughs> and so Austin Bonds wrote this article, Five Things You Need to Know. Let me just read the beginning of it, and then we'll jump into these five things. He says, Growing up in the church, I listened to numerous teachings each Sunday, from sin to salvation, Sabbath to the Samaritan, sanctification to the sacraments. A lot of S's. A lot of it. It's well wow. done right there. That's a preacher. Those messages on parenting, though, I paid them no mind as I was an immature teenager trying to navigate the exact throes of adolescence intact. But that was then, and this is now. Welcome to my now. Research shows that 42% of millennial women who are between 18 and 33 in 2014 were parents. Wow. And he says, my wife and I are expecting our first child, a son, in late June. Though we've been told numerous times by family and friends since our initial announcement, the advice to us bears repeating again for all expecting parents. Everything will change. Amen. Amen. <laughs> for the two of us, this summer will encompass was funny. less dates and more diapers, less sleep and more snot, less romance and more reflux. Huh. Definitely a preacher, by the way. Definitely yes, a preacher. <laughs> uh, i got a poem for you and then we're out. <laughs> Everything will change. Everything will change. In spite of these upcoming adjustments to our lives, we are humbled and excited to pursue parenthood. Uh, parenting is a daunting responsibility that will reshape the context. My wife and I are unearthing a few previously unknown but potent truths for this grand adventure. Here are a few things you need to know. So I appreciate this. He's not yeah. saying, I'm about to be a parent. Here's five things you need to know. He's going right. to go, let me pass on some of the truths people have passed on to right. us. Because really grinds my gears when people are like, <laughs> not parents, but write parenting books. Not, yeah. Anyway. We should save that. Save I'll that save one. Yeah. That's a good one. Pretend I didn't say that. It is pretty. I mean, I think uh, someone listening might be inclined to say this doesn't apply to me. Either I've been a parent for a long time or they're a teenager. Yep. Like he's saying, I think, honestly, this is good stuff for all of us to remember, because even if this isn't your life stage, if, if you're a part of a community in any yes. way, church or otherwise, 
someone you know is in this life stage, and this will help you care for them better, too, I think, by better getting in their heads. I think about your story yesterday. You guys dedicated your child yeah, at right, church this right. week. You might be somebody in a church going, well, I don't have kids. Well, they're, the people, like when a child dedication, they're saying, help us raise our kid, yes. come around us, and these are helpful. Why don't you give us number one? All right, number one, preparation does not negate panic. <laughs> That's true. Yes. After waiting for four years, my wife and I started trying to conceive, making no mistake. We were intentional about this. Make no mistake. We're, oh, I see what he's doing. <laughs> However, <laughs> he's a preacher. Yeah. <laughs> However, hearing your wife say I'm pregnant will stop any man in his tracks. I'd like to say that I embraced my wife, leaned her backwards and gently kissed her forehead after hearing the grand news. But all I mustered up in the moment was a befuddled what? That's about what I did, too, yeah. by the way. Fear gripped my soul. But then I remembered that it should occupy no place in my life. The prophet Isaiah put God's faithfulness like this. So do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Mm. This is a powerful word for any parent expecting or experienced. Though we scare easily, God quells our fears. Emmanuel is with us always. That's good. Number two, man, this one's important. Opinions can be overwhelming. That is true. In the words of Nicole Keir, I used to have a lot of opinions about how parents should raise their kids. Then I had children. (laughs) Expecting parents, moms in particular, will receive advice on sleeping habits, birthing methods, exercise during pregnancy, which gender is better, nursery design, dropping the baby weight, the right response to crying, and the like. Though fathers escape much of these opinions, their presence as a sounding board is a mighty virtue. Mm -hmm. In fact, simply being present, i.e. physical proximity, is an indication of remarkable love towards her. Paul articulates his truth in Ephesians. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In summary, some opinions will be valued higher than others. Who's in your circle of influence? What advice matters? Which is such an important question because I think the vast majority of people who have given us advice, I think did so with wonderful motive. Absolutely. And now seeing on the receiving end how some of that was really hard for my wife to like navigate through like well, who's right or who do I listen no to doubt. some of it can come across kind of shamey even though I don't think they meant it that way those two questions who's in your circle of influence what advice matters most mm. that's really good this is another great one friendships will falter if squeezing work church exercise chores dates meals and sleep into 24 hours isn't enough for our current to-do list the arrival of a child will be nothing short of a game changer in terms of time <laughs> management consequently relationships with existing friends will become strained as a newborn requires immense attention for many months that's really really important then he yep. goes on to quote one of my favorite verses of all time proverbs 27:17 as iron sharpens iron so one person mm. sharpens another use the calendar to schedule time with these important people again yeah. something my wife is very very good at prioritizing like nope these are my lifers yeah. they're worth the time yeah I remember we had our first child before most of our friends had children, right, and that right. was really a game changer. Oh, I'm it, sure of it. To be the first one out of the blocks, you're like, oh, okay, you don't understand. They just they didn't get it, right. Yes, totally yes. understandable. Number four, parents take prece- precedence. I recently came across an article on nerd fitness. Well, going to let that one sit you there. Mm. Nerd fitness. <laughs> and was immensely struck by this remark about how parenthood changes the marriage relationship. You're both much more tired, worried, and overwhelmed than you've ever been before. You realize how much better sleep is than sex, and you're no longer each other's top priority. Though I nod in agreement concerning the coming increase of fatigue and worry, I respectively diverge in saying that parents take precedence. In other words, my wife and I will not raise a child at the expense of our wedding vows made Mm, years ago. That's good. We are each other's top priorities. Consider this enduring principle from Solomon. 
Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one there to help them up. I mean, whether or not Solomon wrote that or somebody was a student of Solomon's teaching, that's neither here nor there right now. He just, wrote it. Just need to say. <laughs> he wrote it. I can't tell if you're being serious. <laughs> number five. Oh, number five. All right, here we go. Uh, we are raising an adult, not an adolescent. That's good, too, man. As an adult, I have paid closer attention to the parenting messages at church I once ignored as a teenager and a college student. Incidentally, one phrase has transcended each series, a phrase that seems obvious but isn't applied well today. Parents are tasked with raising independent adults who, who can succeed on their own. In the words of Julie Lithcott-Hames, author of How to Raise an Adult, uh, this is what she says. The the omnipresent over-involvement means kids grow to be chronologically uh, chronologically adult while remaining utterly stunted, Ooh. dependent on parents to do uh, to not only the he- to do wow boy to do not only the heavy lifting but the lovely light ethereal dreaming as well. That mm. is an important challenge. Even you know because mine are much younger. Like thinking yeah. through how how are we actually going to send them out into the world once our 18, 19, 20 years Absolutely. under our roof is done, which I imagine you're much closer to really grappling with. Yeah, and one of the struggles I've talked about this before is not still viewing them as a toddler or mm. a you know young. I, I look at my my almost sixteen year old. I told her this the other day. I said you need to understand. Sometimes I just see you as a nine year old. Yeah, <laughs> right, like right. Making that transition. So these are really helpful. You can follow them up, find them on our Facebook page. Love to know if you think any of these are off. Uh, what might be missing, the five things you need to know before having your first kid. Well, we're glad you're joining us today. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. It's Ian Simpkins here. And after I had this experience with Thrivent where we were able to host this marriage conference with two other churches in the area, uh, my interest was kind of piqued with regards to what kind of organization this was. And it was really fascinating because they approached me, who was pastoring a church in Bartlett, and they said, we actually provide these free workshops for people that want to be wise with money and live generously. And so they sent me this link, and it was all these different topics, questions that people in my church actually were asking. And so it was remarkable. They hosted this workshop uh, a number of times in the coming months for people in our church to do just that, to to be wise with money and to live generously. And that's kind of how this relationship began, because there was this no strings attached kind of mentality. It was just their heart to give back, to partner with pastors and churches to help people uh, live generously, to be wise with money and live generously. And that was kind of the continuation of my relationship with them. And so if you're interested in learning more, I can't encourage you enough to head to Thrivent.com today. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, but disclaimer though, that bumper... It's a bit of a liar. There is no Brian Fromm. He's in California gallivanting, as we say. Uh, but I am absolutely thrilled to have in the studio one of our only in-studio return guests ever, actually. The one, the only. Give it up for my friend, Aubrey Sampson. Aubrey, Woo-hoo! welcome to the show yes. again. 
I love being the second ever <laughs> returning guest. Thank you for having me. Well, and the first was Hannah Gronowski, which I didn't know you know and like mentor. Yes, I mentor Hannah and have for years. She's an amazing young woman. She really is. And I maybe we'll get to that later because there's something about the way that the two of you think and see the world that, well, there's a reason that you're a return guest. I think that you just have incredible insight into stuff that most people find incredibly daunting and overwhelming. Mm. So we're going to get into that in a second. I want to make sure people know how to get a hold of you. Uh, Twitter, it's at Obsamp. If you're following along, that's short for Aubrey Sampson. That's right. You have to go to AubreySampson.com. Their church website is BringRenewal.com. Her book, TheLouderSong.com. We're also, both of us, speaking at a conference in just a couple of just days. Just two days. Holy cow. And we both confessed we're not prepared yet. Not even a little bit. My guess is you're at least mentally more prepared than I am. <laughs> might be true. <laughs> <laughs> if you're curious where you can see us attempt to lead a workshop, that's at amplifyconference.tv. I think that's happening Tuesday and Wednesday, but yeah. we'll be there Wednesday. So let's be honest, just show up on Wednesday. Just show up Wednesday. But the best here's, day. Okay. And here's one of the things that I didn't realize. Um, so you have two books that you've written. Mm-hmm. The most recent is uh, The Louder Song, right? And that's predominantly about lament. Yep. And uh, that's a topic I want to talk more about because I think it's it's just one that has eluded the church, particularly the Western church for yeah. a long time. But your first book is called Overcomer. Mm-hmm. And last time you were here, we didn't get to ask you about that book at all. Yeah. So I'm curious, could you just tell us a little bit about that book and maybe some of the wisdom that you have now that it's been a little while since you published it? Yes. Um, Overcomer was a hard book to write. It was a good book to write. But um, Overcomer was about my experience of being sexually assaulted on a school bus when I was 13 years old. Gosh. And um, it's not just about, uh, you know, heavy trauma like sexual assault. It's really about any type of insecurity or um, kind of wound or experience that you've been through that keeps you from being all that God wants you to be and oh. and living the fullness of life that God has for you. It's a book primarily for women. Okay. But um, so I had this experience of being abused by two older boys uh, that were on the bus. My busing system growing up in Oklahoma City was really messed up because they mm. bust middle schoolers with high schoolers. Oh, wow. So here are 12, 13, 14 year old kids on the bus with like 16, 17, 18 year old kids, which is just not a good idea. Right, period. Right. And I was a young, impressionable girl, and the boys on the back of the bus were cute, and I liked yeah, them, and right. they showed me attention. And mm. anyway, um, one day they invited me to sit at the back of the bus with them, which just felt like the greatest thing that right. could have ever happened. And, you know, you can read the book, but worse Gosh. came to worse. And I, uh, the worst part about it, honestly, was I, I got off the bus that day. The bus driver didn't see what happened. And I stood in my driveway and I just can remember so clearly having this moment as a 13 year old girl thinking I should go in and I should tell my mom and dad what happened. Right. But this other voice in my head said, no, Aubrey, this is your fault. You liked these guys. You liked their attention. You thought they were cute. You invited this. And at 13 years old, I believe the oldest lie in the book that what happened was my fault because I was female. And so that kind of led me down this path of wanting male attention and making bad decisions and just really textbook stuff. But Mm. anyway, God stepped in. I'm telling you, in my 20s, God stepped in in a powerful way. I'd actually forgot that experience happened, kind of buried it. And when I became pregnant with my first son 13 years ago now, um, I began to remember some things and the book is really about how God led me on this pathway to healing and 
um, really set me free from the shame that I was carrying from that time. So I, one of the things, thank you, by the way, for trusting us with that part of your story, because I know that that's, to call that painful is a massive understatement, I'm sure. Yeah. And this topic of shame is one that I'm finding more and more is the root of a lot of yeah. our heartache and pain, not just for Christ followers, not by a long shot. Right. I'm curious what some of the response has been, because one, you're, you're taking a massive bold step, even in sharing your story. Yeah. Two, I, I just think you have incredible timely wisdom. So it's not just a memoir. It's a, here's how the gospel yeah. has transformed my life as right. a result of that. Right. What, what's been some of the response from, from other women who have read this story, who have had similar experiences or have never had anything like that, even come close to happening to them? Like yeah. what, what have you been hearing? Yeah. I, th- I think I'll tell you some powerful ones. Um, one woman wrote me and actually said, I'm going to cry when I tell you this story, but she, she was in the hospital. She's hospitalized because she was suicidal. Oh my gosh. And she said, I'm sitting here in the hospital reading your book. And for the first time I have hope. And I know that's not just my book. That's the power of God speaking through my but experience. You're the conduit, but, though, right? oh, I oh, felt like, man. Oh, I could die. Like I've done what I, I meant to do in life. And then I've had women who've just, you know, I don't write just about these heavy T traumas, but small T's like when you, you know, you feel overweight or you feel ugly or some of these terrible things that women sometimes Mm. feel, you feel like an imposter. You're not supposed to be doing what you're actually doing. You don't know if you belong. Um, And so I've had women just come to me and just say, Hey, thanks for naming this. You know, I feel this too, but I know that I have a bigger story and God doesn't want me to stay silent and small and, um, the whole book is based on Psalm 34, five, where David says that those who look to God are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. Yes. And um, so that's what I feel like I just keep trying to instill into these, these women and men, but you know, it's a book mostly for women, but right. that when we look to God, he removes our shame. He yes. replaces it with his radiance. That's so good. Do you, do you find too, like, I, I forget that this is your first book, right? So your first right. book and you're getting emails or notes from yeah. someone who's suicidal saying, yeah. Hey, brand new author for the first time ever. I feel like I have hope. <laughs> yeah. Like for you, was that the beginning of, Oh, maybe, maybe this writing thing is something I'm going to do for a long time. Yeah. For me that, um, that answered <laughs> like, should, why am I doing this? Should I be doing yes, this? And right. I kind of felt like, I honestly felt like, okay, if the book was for her and her alone, done. Yeah. Worth it. Worth the time, worth the energy, worth the research, worth putting my story out there. If for her and her alone, she felt hope. And that to me said, there's, oh, there's actually some power in the written word that God uses. And so I'm going to keep doing this. That's right. So why do you think, why do you think that shame has become, like you said, even big T, small T trauma, right? Like stories can be vastly different. And yet, and I don't know if you've had this experience, but in the very limited amount of pastoral counseling I've done, when you really peel back the layers, it feels like shame is at the bedrock of Ugh. a lot of trauma and a lot of issues. Yeah. Why, why do you think that is? Why, why does shame, why, not only is it, why, so, why is it so pervasive, but yeah. why, why is it such a, such a, uh, a constant struggle? Yeah. I mean, I feel like a therapist could answer that probably better than mm-hmm. me, but I think one thing is it's recently come up in culture where it's even okay mm. to talk about some of these shameful experiences or shameful feelings. Or I think before we didn't even necessarily have a vocabulary or a name to put to it. Right. And so we may not have even realized some of the things we were feeling was shame. Right. Interesting. You know? Um, and then I think, I think in other cultures there are, you know, this is very Western because we're so individualized 
we don't tend to talk about when other people shame you or when you right. shame other people. We tend to just think about me and God and my experience. And, what, and so that's a whole other realm of shame that we sometimes don't talk about. And then, I mean, I, you know, I don't want to over spiritualize everything, but at the end of the day, like you look at the garden of Eden and what was the result of sin? It's shame. Right. They hide. Yeah. And so I feel like over and over and over again, that's what we do. We experience some type of painful experience or sin and we hide in our shame. It's just human to do yes, that. You right. know, right, that's a perfect segue to what I want to talk about next, because your newest book, is about lament specifically. It's called The Louder Song, and I would love for you to check it out. You can learn more at thelouderSong.com or AubreySampson.com. So we're going to talk a little bit more about this idea of shame, but then also lament and and the ways maybe the Western church has just missed the boat on this yeah. one because I think it's a difficult topic for us to really delve into. That's yeah. what we're going to talk about coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins. Brian Fromm is running from the law is what I heard last. So turn on your television screens, you'll see him. Uh, no, that's not nice. He's just in California. It's, it's untrue and not nice. <laughs> so sorry, everybody. But that other voice you're hearing is none other than Aubrey Sampson. You can learn more at AubreySampson.com or at AubSamp on Twitter. And uh, our second only in-studio return guests. And uh, I think that you'll understand more and more why, because I think not only do you have an incredible capacity to make really difficult truths accessible, but I I think that you have a unique authenticity to you, Mm -hmm. which is so refreshing, particularly in, in terms of church literature. I don't know if you had this experience. Sometimes you read stuff and you think, I believe what you're saying but it feels like a facade or yeah. it feels like yeah. you're trying too hard to yeah. appeal to a certain. And so you wrote your first book about overcoming shame. Mm-hmm. And so then you figured, okay, I'm going to take a, a jump in the more lighthearted direction and write, <laughs> and write about lament. Right. Yeah. These are beach reads, <laughs> airplane, airplane reads. Classic that I Enneagram four. Like we're going <laughs> to talk about shame. So true. And lament. We're going to go dark <laughs> quick. <laughs> but I'm curious why, because you, so you didn't, I'm assuming you weren't just like picking topics out of a yeah. hat. You're like, all right, well, I guess a book on lament. Like, right. Does that book on lament, it's called The Louder Song, did that have anything to do with the previous book? Or was it just a passion area? Was it something you had been writing about Mm -hmm. or dreaming up or heard in a podcast? Like, what, what was the genesis for writing a book on lament in the first place? So, for me, I love the books that I love are books where people have, um, like, principalized their life stories. Mm especially when they've been through something that's difficult and maybe unique to them, but somehow can relate to readers. That's good. And so um, the louder song similar to Overcomer is that it was birthed from sort of my own journey through a really dark time. Mm. Um, some grief that my family was walking through my own illness. Um, I have a chronic disease that I was diagnosed with. And then our son was dealing with some spinal cord issues and had to have surgery and ongoing care. Wow. And, so I, that was a season where I felt like I, you know, I didn't know if God saw us. I didn't know if God was real anymore. Um, right. I thought, am I praying to the ceiling fan? What's going on? And so the, that book was born from me just saying, I'm not going to walk away from the Lord. I refuse mm. to do that, but I have to be able to find him here. Yeah. I have to be able to access the Lord's presence, even though all I feel is his absence right now. Right. And so, um, finding the tools of lament and the scriptural, um, uh, model of lament became for me the thing that brought me to a place of hope. And then I felt like, 
hey, there's a world out here that's suffering. Right. Maybe it's not my journey, but it's their journey. And how can they experience hope and and have permission to lament to God, to cry out to God, to say all the ugly things to God right. and know that he's not going to push them away, but he's going to show up in a powerful way. Well, that's so that seems like the essence of lament in the first place, that yeah. this idea that God would rather we scream at him than walk away from him. That's right. Right. Like the silence of God doesn't mean the absence of God. That's right. and, I, and I wish I heard more people talk about. Like a third of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. We have a whole book called Lamentations. Lamentations. Jeremiah and Job say things like, you know what? I wish I'd never been born. Even the apostle Paul at times is like, I'm not totally sure I want to live or die. Like, what are we to call those things? But lament. Right. And yet our music tends to reflect almost always like major key joy, which I'm I'm not against. Most of our sermons reflect victory and hope and love. And I'm for all those things. Why, Why do you think? This thing that is so prevalent in our holy writ yeah. is tends to be so absent in our public expressions of faith. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is I love our, I love America, but I think part of it is very American, right? It's just mm. very Western mm. to want to go to the mountaintop and <laughs> yeah. and want to tell like the the Rudy stories of like the we've had victory here right. even though we're little and yes, right. I um. I just, for whatever reason, we haven't given ourselves, I think, as a culture permission to just stop and go, this really, really, really hurts. Yeah. Um, and then I think the other pieces, and, and I do believe this is changing, finally, in culture with social media, this is one of the best things about it. We have been, especially as Western white evangelicals, um, closed off to other people's suffering. Oh, interesting. And um, so we haven't really thought about lamenting even on behalf of other people. And I think now that we're finally hearing other stories, we can stop and we can say, oh, Lord, how long are you going to let these people across the globe or in my own country, in my own neighborhood right. suffer? How long until this ends, God? You know. So, so that's a really great point. So for you, lament isn't just about this personal expression of grief, but it is also this cry for justice. It's yeah. a cry for standing alongside the marginalized and the exploited and the oppressed which I don't know that lament is often linked to those things, but that's often, particularly in the Psalms, part of yep. the prayer. Like, hey, God, did you miss us? Are you paying attention? Right. Like, what is go- like? there's an us sense of like, I keep looking at my window and I see this happening and I want to believe. And it, like, is part of, like for you, is lament as worshipful as everything else? Like, does it belong yeah. as much as all the other sentiments? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think it does. I think we can bring the whole gamut of emotions to God. God wants that intimacy yes. with us, and that leads us to fuller worship of him. Right. And um, I, I definitely think that communal piece of lament is all throughout Scripture, right? The the right. protest laments, which are an expression of lament, are all throughout the Bible. And yet somehow we just, I don't know, we just don't know yet, but hopefully times are changing. And, I think and you're we'll right. And we'll start to grasp it. Okay, so you were also a part of a church plant, which, yep. as you were saying, is three and a half three years old. Three and a half years right? old. Renewal Church. Yep, Renewal Church in West Chicago. West Chicago, bringrenewal.com. I'm, curi- I'm curious what that has been like, planting with your husband and a team from Mission Church, right? Yep. There's a lot of people from there that yep. were kind of a part of that three and a half years in. like yep. how, how have you changed as a, as a speaker, as a leader, as an author in the midst of like, you know, church planning can burn a lot of people out. Yeah. A lot of people are like, that's the last thing I did in ministry was plant a church. It is so hard. Yeah. Like, where where are you on that on that spectrum, even maybe even as an Enneagram 4 amidst all the chaos of all I that? I just talked to a friend who's a church planter, and she said, I quit every Sunday. Just so you know, every Sunday, I decide I'm done. Yep, I understand And then I, t- I take the job again Monday. And she said, her dad was a pastor. He did that for like 50 years. No kidding. He quit every Sunday. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, I love church planting. I mean, I I tell people this kind of tongue in cheek. I don't know if I was a Christian until I was a church planter. No kidding. Like it has built my faith. Watching God build his church has been absolutely incredible. And I have found that um, for me, burnout, you know, doing church planting, doing preaching, doing teaching, doing writing, being a mom, all those things. Right. Burnout doesn't happen when I'm doing too much. It happens when I stop doing the things that matter. That's so good. when I That's stop good. being in the word, when I stop uh, resting, when I stop being with my family, when I stop learning the things that actually fill my soul, that's when I get burnout. Got it. So as long as I'm practicing the good spiritual practices and resting and enjoying what God is doing through our church, I mean, I'm, I'm loving it. I just, I love it. It's made me a better teacher, a better writer, a better practitioner. And it's just, ah, it's just so good to watch God transform people's lives. Which you know? who wouldn't want to be a part of that? Who wouldn't want to be a part of that? It's amazing. I mean, you want to quit every Sunday, well, but it's amazing. And that's the disparity that I find so interesting is because like everything you're saying, I imagine anyone listening is like, yes, I want to be a part of that. Yeah. But statistically, the, the number of people that dip a toe in those waters and they're like, nope, not for me. I'm yeah. out. Like, maybe that's just a wiring thing. But like, it seems like you're particularly wired to just love doing this work, even though yeah. it's hard and difficult and tumultuous at times. I did not want to, um, I didn't want to do it at first. My, oh, really? Yeah. So I will say my husband kind of dragged me into church planting. Right on. Uh, kicking and screaming. Not exaggerating. <laughs> I really was like, I don't, I do not want to do this. Um, and part of it, I had never really been around a church plant. And so I just didn't know, right. like, what do you do? You just open the doors? <laughs> I don't people know. people show up? Yeah. Right, right. But it, I mean, I'm telling you, there's nothing like seeing people baptized who have walked into your church and built relationships and come to Christ and they're yes. being discipled. You just are like, okay, Lord, you're good. You actually save people. You actually transform lives. I can do this That's for the so rest good. of my life. Okay. You know? I have like a thousand more questions. Luckily we have you for two more segments. Hopefully you'll stick yes. around. <laughs> <laughs> that other voice you've been hearing is Aubrey Sampson. You can learn more at AubreySampson.com or on Twitter at AubSamp. And uh, coming up next, I'm going to ask you a little more about church planning. I'm going to ask you about leadership and teaching in particular. And uh, what are some ways forward for the church uh, amidst all the chaos that is the local church? That's what's coming <laughs> up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good, and it is a dance party up in this Woo-hoo! studio. That other voice that you are hearing, my friend Aubrey Sampson, you can learn more at AubreySampson.com or at AubSamp on Twitter. You can also learn more about their church at BringRenewal.com, the book, TheLouderSong.com. We're going to be speaking at Amplify Conference on Wednesday at AmplifyConference.tv, which I don't know how you get a .tv. Is how this being broadcast? I mean, that's the only thing I can think of. Yeah. It might be. Should that make us more nervous? I feel like we should be more prepared than we are, for for sure. Oh, I'm looking at my notes right now. I don't know what you're talking about. You're studying while we're talking? I'm so prepared. It's not fair. It's not fair. (laughs) All right. So here's here's just sort of the recap. You've written two books, uh, both pretty heavy topics. Mm -hmm. Right. The first about specifically overcoming shame, which I feel like we could talk the rest of the hour about. Um, And then the other book is about lament which is a beautiful book, by the way. I've read Thank it, you. and I think it is such a timely, necessary work. Mm-hmm. And uh, I hope the church pays attention because mm-hmm. I think that kind of topic is something that the people that maybe are, quote-unquote, outside the church yeah. look at the church and say, well, they don't even seem to interact with the broken parts of humanity yeah. and the hurting parts of the world. And yeah. I think 
that even lament as an apologetic is so, so important. I totally agree with that. But another thing, though, that uh, I think that you're really gifted at is not only writing, but preaching and teaching as well. And in your context, um, you you preach and teach fairly regularly, right? Yeah, I'm part of our, we have a preaching team. There's three of us that kind of rotate, and I preach regularly at our church. Okay, so I'm going to ask you to get real honest then, if that's yeah. okay. What has is, what is that journey <laughs> been like um, as a woman in leadership yeah. with clear giftedness, ha- have you always been supported in that regard or has that been a bit of a journey? Are yeah. there still hurdles that someone like me might not even be aware of, to be honest? Yeah. Just teach us a little bit. Okay. Um, so the first time I taught the Bible publicly, what I was a junior high youth pastor and, um, sort of had to do it every okay. Sunday. Okay. And I realized, oh, I actually like this. Really? Mm-hmm. Were you, you were surprised by that? I was surprised by mm. it. Mm-hmm. And I was in my young 20s, and I had um, people in my church affirm, like, there's some gifting here, which surprised me. And mm. thankfully, I mean, this is a rare experience for a woman, especially in the evangelical church world, but thankfully I had a lead pastor at the time who also affirmed my gifting and he put really? me on a main stage on Sunday morning a couple times. Wow, that's awesome. And that was my first experience like preaching to a church. Still in and your 20s? Still in my 20s, okay. yep. And I um, really felt like uh, God's pleasure and I felt like, oh, this is something maybe I'm created to do. Wow. And yet, of course, as a woman, there's a lot of opponents to yes, that. And yes. in fact, the first time I preached, I was in the hall and I overheard a conversation where uh, someone said, oh, Aubrey's preaching today. How exciting. And I heard a voice say, oh, she's not preaching. She's sharing. Stop. Yeah. And um, that sounds like nothing, but it was. No, that's something. It was something. Yep. Yeah, it was a, a heavy statement, and I knew at that point, okay, if I'm going to go this road, I'm going to have to be okay going this road because wow. there are going there are a lot of opinions about how I should be doing it and if I should be doing it. Well, thank you for continuing to, because I think that's mm-hmm. again, even to hearing you share, like, oh, those are things that I've never overheard someone like people yeah. have said. Ian's just not very good. <laughs> But there, I've never had to experience these yeah. these like slight subtle shifts in language. And yeah. I'm curious how how from that moment, what's the rest of that journey look like? What's the rest of that journey look like? Um, I felt like if I'm going to do it, I need to get some actual training. Mm. And so I have gone back to grad school for um, theology, for preaching. I've ta- taken preaching classes so I can learn best practices and so that I can... Um, stand before God and stand before others feeling mm. like, hey, uh, this is not just something I'm called to do. It's something I'm equipped to do. And oh, so right. that gives me some more confidence before the Lord and before mm. other people. And then also, um, I have been blessed to have men and women support me along the journey. And again, I know that's not everyone's experience, right. but I have been blessed by pastors who have invited me to their churches or let me preach on their stages from their pulpits and I feel really grateful for that. I know that's a big deal. And so I feel thankful for that. But then of course I was preaching at mission church, which we talked about recently. Mm -hmm. And someone sent me some Facebook messages, someone I don't know with just, you know, a few of the Pauline verses about women being silent. And there were some verses in, in Deuteronomy that I probably shouldn't say here that I would like to send (laughs) back to him. I just didn't respond. So there's, you know, there's always naysayers. 
Yeah. And you have to develop a thick, I always say thick skin, tender heart, thick skin, tender heart. That's good. I know what the Lord has called and gifted me to do. I'm thankful for the people that have allowed me to do it. I'm thankful for the honor that it is to preach. I never want to grow arrogant and think like, oh, I deserve to be doing this, you know? Mm. Um, But I have to have a thick skin as a woman and just know there's going to be opinions I have to wrestle with the Lord, yeah, you know, right. and my community and, right. and my community right. is affirming and that allows a woman to preach and teach and lead. So, See, and that's a real gift. And like you were saying too, that your experience is in some ways unique, unfortunately, yeah. Yeah. like I, I can't tell you how many stories I have heartbreaking stories. Yeah. And I think, uh, the church has, has got to get its head and heart around the ways that we've denigrated and diminished yeah. women's roles. Yeah. Um, and that, I mean, I, I could start preaching on that, I guess, but I'm curious just in your journey, are there books or authors or lectures or things that have really helped shape you in that regard that maybe somebody listening who's, who's really not in, in any way uh, an affirming of this position that, yeah. you, that you would suggest, hey, just give this a read. Just consider give it a shot. This. Just consider this. Yeah. right? I think there are two really good resources from very respected theologians. Um, Scott McKnight, who we were just talking about, yep. has an amazing book called The Blue Parakeet. It's fantastic. Which I think is just a great place to begin. And then there's actually a lecture that N.T. Wright gave a few years ago at Wheaton College. It may have even been a decade ago now. Hmm. He talked about Mary and Martha. Um, you, I think you can actually find it online. You may just have to Google like N.T. Wright speaking at Wheaton about women. And he talked about how Jesus inviting Mary to sit at his feet Hmm. was inviting Mary to learn in order to teach. Oh, wow. And that, I mean, I think every woman I was with at that conference, we sat there and bawled our eyes out because it was the first time this strong male theologian, thinker, academic was saying, actually, our Lord has gifted you to do this and allowed you to do this. And maybe we've considered some of these. We've built a theology around two verses, and maybe we ought to look at the whole scripture. Which, like what you're saying with, no, that's great, with N.T. Wright and Scott McKnight, these aren't, uh, these aren't two renegades either. These right. guys, both uh, deeply academic, yep. but also firmly rooted in their tradition, yes. which I think at the very least is worth interacting with. And I know that there are people listening that are, at the end of the day, they're just going to disagree. Yeah, and that's fine. I think it is too. I do. There is, for me, part of that, uh, it feels like sometimes the church has functioned with uh, an arm tied behind its back yeah. by saying, hey, sorry, we recognize that you are fully gifted that uh, you've been anointed, whatever language you want to use. um, Like, Oh, can I have a microphone? Like, absolutely not. And I I wonder um, what places maybe that's led us to and what words of encouragement have you received even personally? So let's take it out of the academic sphere. What are some things that women maybe have spoken into you or over you that have have really kind of given you the courage to keep putting one foot in front of the next? Yeah. I mean, I I feel like anytime, um, anytime a woman preaches, anytime I've heard a woman preach, it's so it's healing. Mm. It feels very prophetic, even if she's not necessarily a prophet, just seeing it happen is so powerful. And that's my experience. I've had women and men say that um, they're encouraged by seeing a woman on stage preaching the word, Mm -hmm. not necessarily being fluffy or flowery, but actually preaching the word of God. It's meant something to them because they've never seen it before or they've rarely seen it. And so I just, like you said, it's, I mean, I feel like it's not just, we're not just hurting half the church. We're hurting. We're, we're hurting the whole church mm. by ignoring or silencing this body, you yeah. know. And so I just feel like there are gifts that women have to bring to the table, 
And it's going to be a powerful next generation of women coming up. I know it. I can't can't, wait. I can't wait either. I'm really looking forward to it. And I think you're a testament to that, Mm. to that gifting and that wiring. And I'm so grateful that you have found yourself in environments where people have said, no, we recognize this gift. Yeah, me too. I'm very grateful for that. And I think that's, that's incredible. I want to ask you a little bit more about that and then hopefully get some time to talk about the process of writing. Cause I think that's, that's kind of the behind the scenes piece that people have no idea about, especially if they're not a writer. So uh, I'm going to ask you some of those questions coming up next on the common good with Aubrey Sampson on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins. That band is the band that Brian Fromm can never remember. If you're listening, they're called Modest Mouse. They're worth listening to. It's fantastic. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com. But all this hour, we've had the pleasure of having Aubrey Sampson in the studio. You can learn more at aubreysampson.com or at obsamp. I can't encourage you enough. Get, just get both of her books, Overcomer and The Louder Song. They're both fantastic. They're insightful. They're honest. They're raw. And I want to kind of bring it full circle because last segment we were talking about, I mean, honestly, women in leadership yeah. and some of your own journey and struggle. But before that, we were talking about lament. And you were, you were kind of saying a little bit during the break about regardless of where we land theologically, that maybe it's time for the church to lament the mistreatment of women. Yeah. I, you know, I, I feel like, of course, there are there are brilliant people on both sides of this yes, debate of who love the Lord. And I think we can just all acknowledge that, you know, no one's a villain, but um, if nothing else, even if you can't get there to affirm women in preaching, teaching leadership, I do think the church generally needs to begin communally lamenting the sexism, the pain that we have caused women hmm. and ask under the theological, um, you know, hat that I wear, what can I do to empower women like yes. before God? What can I do and still feel like I, I am being full of integrity before God? So I do feel like that lament piece, just saying that women were so sorry. We've silenced you. We're so sorry. We've made you feel small. We're so sorry that we've said you're gifted, but we're not going to let you use those gifts. Yes. Um, that to me feels like some healing could happen in a really powerful way. Yeah, I totally agree. And just in case anyone's listening and they're thinking, um, yeah, but there's no examples of women leading in the Bible I actually put together this list. If you'll allow me I'll just read it real quickly. Love I this. think this might actually be helpful for people. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, Miriam leading worship in Exodus 15, Deborah leading Israel in judges Four. uh, Huldah interpreting the law in second Kings, mm-hmm. Esther serving God's people from genocide in the book of Esther, Mary Magdalene, the first to preach the gospel, by the way, Mary of Bethany, anointing Jesus as the Messiah, Mary of Nazareth, birthing the savior of the world, Anna, the prophet in Luke two, Joanna and Susanna, uh, disciples who traveled with Jesus in Luke 8. Tabitha, a disciple known for her good works in Acts 9. Priscilla, who corrected false teachings in Acts 18. Lydia and Nympha, hosting house churches in Acts 16. Phoebe, the deacon in Romans 16. And Junia, the apostle in Romans 16. So if you want to talk about examples of women in leadership, uh, they're there for sure. And I think you're called to lament, regardless of where we land theologically, like it's just true. And I think for the church to learn to lament that. Uh, is so powerful and so needed. And it's what I love about your writing because you you don't seem to just write from a place of like, oh, this would be a good thing to write about. Like it seems like it's birthed from, oh, no, I have to write about this. Definitely. And I'm curious for people that aren't writers, what is that writing process like for you? Like how do you, how does it go from like dream to concept to draft to like, oh my gosh, I'm letting an editor see it <laughs> to cover designs. Like I'm, yeah. I, I really have no clue about how any of that actually feels experientially? Yeah, this is a great question. I actually get asked this a lot because um, lots of people want to write books. Right. But I think I, I'm actually going to make this statistic up. 
but I think <laughs> it's something like uh, this is this is good for radio. It's something like 80 percent of people want to write books. Ten hmm. percent actually sit down and write. I don't doubt that at yeah. all. Yeah. Um, so the first step is literally, I mean, this is the best piece of writing advice. Sit down at computer and type, you know, you just, <laughs> just have blank word doc. Yeah, go, just, just do it. Go start mm. getting it out of your head. Mm. Um, for me, I'll write one or two chapters and then I will, um, uh, edit, edit, edit. You have to write like your first draft is the worst draft, you know, and you just that have really to. That really is true. That is so true. Ugh. Yeah, it's so true. It's you just have to get everything out of your head, everything out of your heart. It doesn't matter if it makes sense. Get it on paper. Wow. And then you go through and edit it. You okay. know, then you go through and make it beautiful. It's what God does with <laughs> us, right? We're messes. Oh, that's so good. God sanctifies us. What you do, right? <laughs> Um, and I love writing community. I'm part of a manuscript group and a, a writing group called Redbud Writers Guild. Hmm. And so I will, you know, send my chapter samples or whatever to some writers that I trust and they'll give me feedback. And hmm. then from there, I'll just work and work and work and make it beautiful. And um, then from there, I usually like if you're writing a book, you have to do a book proposal and things like that. That can take a lot of work. But then, yes. Then I finally feel like it's ready for an editor to see or an agent to see. Or... All of that has to happen before you're ready to. Isn't that crazy? Oh All goodness. that has to happen first. Jeez. Yeah. Not everyone knows that. You have to do a lot of work before a publisher will look at it. Wow. And when you're a little bit further on in the game, you don't have to do quite as much of that. But right. especially at the beginning, I mean, that first book proposal you write can be up to 30 pages. The I mean, the proposal is? Yeah, the proposal. It's all, it, I'm getting people tired don't of just know this, right? It. Holy cow. <laughs> this is why a lot of people, they'll ask me, how do I write a book? And I'll start to tell them, and then they're like, oh, maybe I don't. Maybe <laughs> like, I really don't want to do yeah. this. Yeah. <laughs> I'm start and a blog. this is traditional publishing. You can self publish, yeah. you can do other, you could start a blog. There are other ways to write. You don't right. have to go about the way I did. And um, then you start, I mean, you outline your book and anyway, I mean, it's kind of a long, it's a long journey, but often it it does begin with like for me, I'll be, I'll have an idea or a thought or a feeling and record it on my phone. And then later I'll sit back down and I'll write it out and I'll think, is there something here again, principalizing experience? Is there something here that might connect to other people is there something in my story that I could pull out hmm. that's not just about me, but someone else right. could learn from? And it's a journey for yeah, sure. Yeah, it sounds like it. I'm yeah. curious, what is the, like, how difficult is it when editors start sending back sections that are like, yeah, we're cutting this? And you're like, no, we, we worked so hard on that section. Like, is that painful or have you just kind of gotten good to like, I trust the editor, I trust your yeah. wisdom? Yeah, um, it's both. And really? sometimes it's, sometimes it is painful and sometimes you're like, oh, especially an editor that's good. You're like, yeah, right. oh yeah, they're right. Oh yeah. Ooh, this was kind of ugly. I'm glad they caught that. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't, you know, they didn't let me go to prom with toilet paper coming out of my dress. You know what I mean? Like it's, that's a good analogy. So it's, it can be a little painful, especially when you're vulnerable, but often it just, the book is so much better when an editor looks at it that yes. you're just like, oh, thank you. <laughs> All right, I didn't prepare you for this question at all. We only have like 30 seconds left, but what what's the next book going to be about? Do you have any sense of what that is? I do, actually. I've started really? to work on it. Mm-hmm. No kidding. Yep, yep. Well, that um, out there, shoot. The next book is going to be kind of a, this is going to sound real churchy, but a priesthood of all believers book. So basically, if you're a follower of Jesus, that God has equipped you to be a fully 
functioning minister of the gospel. It is yes. not just the preachers. It is not just the church leaders. It is not just on staff. Come on. You as a follower of Jesus are sent out on mission for his kingdom. So that's what that one's going to be about. Any title ideas? Do you have any? Oh, I have some really bad title ideas. <laughs> I don't want to share them. If anyone has any good ones, please you can tweet me and tell me yes. <laughs> I need some desperately. Authors are notoriously bad titlers. Really? Yes. Oh, well, for what it's worth, I love the concept. Thank you. I, I, I think that is so needed that you, that church isn't something that we attend for the show yes. and pay the professionals to do that. We are. It's something we belong to and that yes. we're a part of. Yeah. And do you have any sense of when that's going to come out? No. <laughs> soon. Let's say soon. I'm going to believe it. Yes, soon. we are too. I cannot wait. Go to AubreySamson.com to learn more. Visit her on Twitter at AubSamp. You can go to The Louder Song. Get all of her books. Follow her on Twitter. Aubrey, thank you so much for joining us again Thanks today. Thanks so much for having me, Ian. I appreciate it. This has been so much fun. This has been The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.